Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want everybody to take your palm in hand. And now I want you to stand up. Okay, everybody stand up, if you can, if, you may, if you're able. And now, I don't want you just to wave it back and forth like this, like Joe was saying. I want you to wave it back and forth like this. Big arches. Big arches. Everybody, if you're not doing this, we're going to pull the camera down on you and everybody in the city is going to see you. Now, on three, everybody shout Hosanna. One, two, three. Hosanna. One more time. One, two, three. Hosanna. Very good. Now, everybody, instead of just putting them down, now everybody shake it like this. Make some noise with it. Good. Now everybody have a seat. That's all I know I'm going to get out of Presbyterians. So um, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why, why did we, you know, why do we, why do we bring out palms on Palm Sunday? Why did the people who welcomed Jesus into the city bring out palms on Palm Sunday? You know, we, how often do we ask those questions? What was this about? What was the cultural significance of waving palms and shaking them and shouting them, shouting the name or shouting the word Hosanna? Well, think about a football game. Think about cheerleaders shaking pom-poms or think about people up in the stands with those great big foam fingers and yelling their lungs out. Why are they doing that? Number one, they're doing it because they want to celebrate their team. They want to show their support. They want to say, we're with you, boys. We're with you, ladies. We are here. We're in the stands, but we're with you here. But the other thing that they wanted to do back then, the reason they shouted and the reason they've waved palms is to get people's attention. They wanted people to know that the king had come. They wanted people to see that the king had come, and they wanted people to take notice. That's why they waved the palms. That's why they shouted. That's why they welcomed their king in that way. Well, today we're going to be reading that story once again, this familiar story of Palm Sunday from Luke's gospel. And I want you to think in terms of that shouting, of that, of that cheering and getting someone's attention. Beginning in Luke 19, verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he, knew, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told him, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was driving near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Today we are going to unpack the deep and rich and sober meaning of what Jesus was doing that day that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey at the beginning of Passover week in 33 A.D. As Jesus and his disciples got closer to Jerusalem, Jesus told his followers that God had a plan, a plan for him to rescue humanity from the pain and the shame and the darkness of sin and to restore humanity's broken relationship with God. And he laid out this plan for them three different times. The final time in Luke 18, he said this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. That was the plan. And each time Jesus talked about it, he named four essential elements to God's plan. First, that he must be rejected. Second, that he must suffer. Third, that he must die. And then fourth, that he will rise again after three days. Now, one thing is clear from each telling of this plan, that his death is intentional. He means for it to happen. He is not running from it, but walking into it. And it will not be quick, no swift mercy or quarter given. And it will not be a hero's death. He will not die a martyr to the people. He will suffer greatly. He will be humiliated, shamed, mocked, and die naked like a criminal. But he also told them that this plan was not only about death, it was also about life. Each time he told them of his death, he also declared that he would rise from the dead. Not at some uncertain time in the future like us, but precisely after three days. His death is appointed and his resurrection is appointed. They will happen on schedule. You can set your clock by it and he will win. Now, before we talk about the events of Palm Sunday that we've read today, let's take a look at something that happened immediately before he got to Jerusalem. If you look earlier in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, you'll see that in the town of Jericho, approximately a week before the Passover of 33 AD, 
Jesus put this plan in motion. At the beginning of Luke chapter 19, Jesus was in the town of Jericho in the Jordan Valley. This was the turning point where travelers and pilgrims coming south from Galilee, taking the route down the Jordan River Valley, would take a hard right turn and start making the steep climb, a 3,300-foot ascent for 18 miles from the bottom of the Jordan Valley all the way up into the mountains to the holy city of Jerusalem. That's why the Bible always refers to people going up to Jerusalem, because from every direction, one had to climb to get there. But while he was in Jericho, while he was in that town, a man came to hear Jesus, a man named Zacchaeus, a sinner, a tax collector. In the eyes of his own people, he was a traitor. He was a Roman collaborator who cheated his own people and extorted money from them. The more he charged them, the richer he got. And everyone feared him and everyone hated him. He was the most despised man in town. Nobody loved him. Everyone hated him. Everyone except Jesus. Instead of despising him, Jesus did what he always did. He showed love to the sinner. He included the outsider. And he showed Zacchaeus that no one is beyond the grace of God. When Zacchaeus met Jesus, his life was changed forever. He gave up his wicked ways and he restored all that he had stolen. But when this happened, even when this happened, the other people were furious. They grumbled saying, why would Jesus pay attention to a person like that? Why would he dignify such a vile and treacherous person, someone so beneath contempt? And it was at this point, as Jesus was making his turn up toward the city, that Jesus declared his purpose for going to Jerusalem. He said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. In other words, I came to save people just like this. That's why I'm here, and that's what I'm going to do. And with those words, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Jesus and his followers began to climb up to Jerusalem to put God's plan into motion. Now, when they were just outside of the city, Jesus paused to give his disciples some instruction. They were to go and to fetch an unbroken colt, a young donkey that had never been ridden. And rather than walk into the city as he had done many times before, Jesus would finish the journey to Jerusalem by riding this donkey through its gates. Now, on one level, it seems to make sense. It was a long 18-mile walk. It was a long climb, a steep walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus was tired. But Jesus didn't choose to ride 
a donkey into Jerusalem because he was tired. Jesus chose to enter the city this way because it was the fulfillment of prophecy. The book of Matthew even says so. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Zechariah foretold of a day when a new king of Israel would arise. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was describing the manner in which the Messiah, the new king of Israel, would enter the city. But that prophecy doesn't end with how Jesus would arrive. Zechariah 9.10 says also, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this king is coming to take charge of his kingdom. Now this was a well-known, deeply familiar prophecy, known by the Jewish people. It held so many of their hopes, which is why so many people got caught up and began cheering and hailing Jesus as king. They said, it's finally happening. They saw this well-known teacher, this famous miracle worker, mounted on a donkey and riding into the city, and they were swept up in this deeply loaded moment. Finally, everything we've been waiting for. And Jesus also knew about this prophecy, and he knew that it was deeply symbolic. Jesus knew what he was doing. The crowd's reaction shouting, the waving palms. It was no accident. Jesus was on a mission. And he came into the city the way he did, specifically to stir up the crowd, to create a buzz, to get everyone's attention, and most importantly, to provoke a reaction. You see, Jesus entered the city the way he did, as a provocation. He not only got the attention of the people, he not only got the attention of his friends, but he also got the attention of his enemies. You see, the people in the crowd weren't the only ones who knew this prophecy. The Romans and their advisors knew this prophecy as well. And in the last lines of Zechariah's prophecy, the Lord said, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The Jews had thrown off the Greeks in the past between the Old and New Testaments, when they'd fought the descendants of Alexander the Great and won their independence. That's what Hanukkah is all about. And now here they were, under the oppressive rule of the Romans, who were the sons and the heirs of the Greek culture, 
and the sons and heirs of Alexander's empire. The Romans were the new Greeks. They were Greece 2.0. And the ancient prophet Zechariah had foretold that they would be overthrown by a king riding on a donkey. And the mob was shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the Roman Empire would tolerate a lot, but they would not tolerate a threat to their dominance. The crowd had hailed Jesus as king, and there could be no king but Caesar, no kingdom but Rome. They could not let such a revolutionary incitement stand, certainly not from a usurper riding on a donkey. This Jew would have to be put down. He got the attention of the Romans. But he also got the attention of the religious leaders. The Jewish leaders had tried for decades to keep the peace with the Romans by telling the Romans that they could keep their own people orderly and under control And yet there was Jesus inciting the crowd with coded signals of of revolutionary symbolism. And so some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, Jesus, shut them up. Calm them down. Are you trying to get us all killed? Not only had Jesus insulted the religious leaders and called them out as vipers and hypocrites, not only would he violently disrupt the commerce of the money changers and prophesy that the whole temple would come crashing down, now he presented a suicidal threat to Israel, provoking the wrath of the Romans. And he had to be silenced permanently. By claiming And taking up the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus had gotten the attention of the Romans and had gotten the attention of the religious leaders. But why did he want to provoke the Romans and the religious leaders? Because it was part of the plan. Remember, Jesus said that he had to be rejected by the religious leaders and he had to be turned over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to be killed. Jesus was not inciting the people to rise up in revolution. He was provoking his enemies to raise him up onto the cross to do what he had to do. To do what Jesus had to do. To give his life as justice for our sins. The religious leaders and the Romans would have to play their part of the plan. And we see that throughout Holy Week, they played that part gladly. The judges of Israel tried and condemned the blameless Son of God as a sinner. 
this preacher of love and holiness, this healer of the sick and comforter of the outcast. And the Romans, who were so proud of their justice, executed this innocent man like a criminal. All according to God's plan. As the Apostle Paul, Luke's teacher, wrote, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the plan. And even though the disciples didn't like it, and even though they didn't understand it, that was the plan. And it all started on Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem the way he did on Palm Sunday to set in motion the events that would lead to his passion, his death and his resurrection, the cross and the empty tomb. And it worked. But on the night before Jesus was crucified by the Romans and just hours before he was tried and arrested, Jesus sat down with his disciples for the Passover meal. And John tells us that he told his disciples that he would be betrayed and turned over to the executioners. He told them the plan one last time but in a way that they would never forget. He didn't just tell them. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he said, this cup is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the plan. Jesus was about to do what he set out to do from the beginning, to die for our sins. And he wanted them to understand that it was no accident. He was following the Father's plan and fulfilling his promise. And to prove it, after telling them that he was going to die, John tells us that Jesus said, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus stuck to the plan. And he kept his promise. Why? Because Jesus came to Jerusalem to fight the fight that we could never survive. So that we could live the life that God created us to live. The Son of God picked a fight with the most powerful forces on earth just to prove how much He loves us. To prove that He didn't come for any reason other than to seek and save the lost. Will you pray with me?
God, our Father, everything that your son did on that Palm Sunday was designed to get his enemies' attention. But throughout the week, you proved that through your plan, you were going to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, I pray that through the events of Holy Week, you will get our attention so that we will understand how much you love us, how much you were willing to do and give, how far you were willing to go to prove that love. As we gather around your table today, O oh God, help us to remember that this was your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, we come to this table to remember that our God had a plan. And that plan was to suffer and die so that justice would be served for our sins, so that we could live the life that he created us to live without the fear, the guilt, and the shame of what we deserve. We come to this table to remember that Jesus Christ picked a fight on our behalf, that he fought a battle that we could not win so that we could live forever. It's not about what we do. It is about what he has done. And that is why we come here to celebrate today, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we come to this table not because we must, but because we may. We come to this table not to fulfill a requirement or to check a box, but to receive a gift, something that he has already done for us and already given to us. We come to this table to remember that his grace is greater than our sin. And so we do not come because we're worthy. We come because we are invited and we are invited because we are loved and we are forgiven. And so, on his behalf, I declare to you that this is the joyful feast of the people of God, that they will come from east and west and north and south to sit at table in the kingdom so that we may remember what he has done for us. I invite anyone who is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, anyone who follows Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord to come and partake of this table, to come and taste and see that the Lord is good and that because of the victory that he won for us, his steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can come together today around this table. Thankful for what this table represents and reminds us of. That your steadfast love and that you demonstrated your love for us 
in that while we were still sinning, Jesus died for us. And as this table today is at the beginning, brings us together at the beginning of Holy Week, we pray that you would just empower us, equip us, help us to see and feel and understand your love for us as we think through and as we experience through what took place and what we will be celebrating next Sunday in the resurrection. Father, thank you that through the power and authority of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have power and authority through the things that take our hearts and break our hearts. We pray for those that, that are mourning. We pray for those that are experiencing sickness. We pray for those who, who need your special touch in their hearts and their minds and their lives. We're thankful that through Jesus Christ, through your Holy Spirit, that is alive and well in us, you can deal and help us to deal and walk through and experience forgiveness and healing and joy and thank you that you love us and care for us. Father, we look around us and see how much hurt and harm and hatred is in the world. We pray that this week as, as many in the world will be looking at you, looking to you, looking at the cross, that they might see it for real. We pray that you would give us opportunities to be your witnesses to our families, to our friends, in our workplaces, in our city, and pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the power and authority that is ours to be your witnesses and give us those opportunities, especially in this week. And help us to celebrate together next week as we come together for Easter Sunday. Father, we're thankful for the way that you work in our lives. We're thankful for the way that you guide and direct us. We're thankful for your steadfast love that endures forever. And now we ask your blessing on, on this bread and this cup. And as we hold it in our hands, and as we take it to our lips, and as we eat together, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to receive spiritual nourishment through these natural elements. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be present with us in everything that we say and do here today. Guide us and direct us. Open our hearts and our minds and use us for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>